0: God, we come today to worship you. We've come into your house and to be with your people, so uh, to hear your words and to learn of your ways. So this morning, give us strength for this journey. Thank you for all who have come, these faithful companions on this road. Help us as we map our way together, following the route that you have showed us, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, We're continuing today our teaching series uh, called Take the Next Step, and um, we've been featuring the Old Testament book of Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament, with four messages during this season of November. Today we're in chapter three, and uh, it's going to challenge us in maybe a little different way. In this series, we've been looking at four topics that are core to our life as a church together and that is worship and leadership and giving and service. Today, we're gonna get to all that um, in just a few minutes. As we begin this morning, uh, let me acknowledge that over the years, churches everywhere uh, have gotten a bad rap for the perception that all the church does is ask people for money. And caricatures of pastors almost always involve some reference to making people feel guilty or uh, asking for money. And I hope you know that's not our style here at Redeemer. We teach biblical principles about the lifestyle of a Christ follower when it comes to managing our financial resources that God has blessed us with, but we don't try to shame, we don't try to guilt anyone into giving what God has not already laid on your heart to give. I also want you to know that I never talk about finances or giving without realizing that the stakes are high. Over the years, I know of a few people who have not returned because we dared to talk on this very topic. And I mention that just in case you're here today and feel like you, meet, you might need to know where the exits are. Um, they're located here in the back and one over here. Uh, you know, <clears throat> our goal is for you to be a fully devoted Christ follower. That's our only goal. I would never want anyone to feel that this, uh, what we want in this church is, is simply to get people's money. Our goal is for you to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. But I do want to mention that our short study in Malachi this month has, has messed with a lot of us. Um, I'm sure it has for some of you, uh, because if you feel like uh, you haven't really measured up to God's standard... Uh, or God's purpose for your life, join the club. Uh, that is the t- the, how uh, deep this little book has gotten into our spirit and into our soul. But let us also remind you that the very first message in uh, Malachi to God's people is that God loves us. Uh, that's the overwhelming message. God loves us. God sent his son into the world to deal with our guilt, In our shame, in our feelings of inadequacy, God's love for us is unconditional, and he desires nothing more than to be in a relationship with us. So having said that, I want to affirm today that how we manage our time, how we manage our money, how we manage all of those things that are part of our life uh, is directly linked to our spiritual growth. In fact, there are more verses in the Bible regarding our financial resources than about heaven or hell combined. Of the 38 parables that Jesus told, 16 of them uh, deal with money. The Bible has fewer than 300 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, and over 2,000 verses that deal with wealth and possessions. So the inescapable conclusion is that how we deal with what God has entrusted to us in general And what we give back to God in particular is a very big deal to God. And so we need to focus on this topic sometimes, no matter how uncomfortable uh, some of us may be with it. But several places in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as a refining fire. And he cleans and he purifies our lives and he does his work in us so that we can reflect his image uh, through us. I want you to notice that one of the reasons God refines us is so that we can give all that we are and all that we have back to him with pure motives. Look at Malachi chapter 3, and I want to point out the first four verses where it says, Look, I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. And then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in the past. Now if you were here the last couple of weeks, you know we talked about how instead of giving to God the, the, the good and the best of their offerings, the people were offering unacceptable offerings, injured, crippled, diseased animals to the Lord. And God's people uh, were to honor God's name. They were to respect him for who he is. And the goal was to offer acceptable offerings, to bring their best, not their worst. And my guess is that uh, most of us could stand a little refining fire in our attitudes toward giving to God at times. we, For example, we don't Uh, always give to God in order to get something in return although that is a perception out there we don't give to meet the needs of the church budget uh, although some give just for that purpose we don't give so that other people know that we're doing our part Uh, we give because we have been blessed and we want to bless others So with that in mind, I want to skip down to verses 6 through 12 in this third chapter of Malachi, where we're going to discover five features of grace-filled giving. And the first one is this, grace-filled giving refocuses us on God's character. And As we've been learning in Malachi, our view of God determines everything else about us. Our view of God, how we see God, determines everything else about us. If we consider God worthy of our respect and our worship, we're going to to live and we're going to give accordingly. But if we see God as someone who's out to get us, then we'll be afraid and give only to appease his anger. And if we don't think much of God at all, chances are we're not going to give much to advance God's kingdom here on earth. So verse six helps us to get refocused. It says, I am the Lord and I do not change. This is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. God is speaking here in the first person. The word Lord literally means uh, he who is and refers to God's unchangeableness. The next phrase repeats and emphasizes the fact I am the Lord and I do not change. I do not change means that God can be counted on He's not going to waver. He's not going to falter because God is faithful. You see, our only hope in this life is that God never changes. He is the one constant that we can count on while everything else around us moves and turns and shifts and changes. God does not and cannot change in his basic character. Nothing that God has ever said about himself will ever be modified nothing that the inspired prophets and Apostles have said about him will ever be rescinded All that God is he has always been all that he has been and is he will ever be we can use the word always to express this truth because God uh, because with God it's accurate God is always wise He is always sovereign. He is always faithful. He is always just. He is always holy. He is always loving. And whatever God is, he always is. There's no sometimes attributes of God. All of his attributes are always attributes. Now, there are many verses in the Bible that teach us this truth, and just give you a couple of them. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says... He who is the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not human, that that he should change his mind. James 1.17, whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Now I want you to notice that because God does not change, we can count on him to keep his covenant with us. Specifically, the unchanging nature of God is the guarantee of his grace. Look at the last part of verse six. This is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. God could have literally wiped out his people because they uh, they were not respecting him, they were not honoring him, and they had broken their part of the covenant. But God didn't do that. Let me ask you, how do you see God? Do you see God as someone who's gracious and merciful, or do you see God as someone who's judgmental and harsh? I'm convinced that many of us do not fully understand the depths of God's love. Uh, He does not change, and we can count on him. Psalm 78, 38 says, yet he was merciful and forgave their sin and did not destroy them. Many times he held back his anger and did not unleash his fury. Because God, because god does not change we can confidently count on three things to be certain one his promises never change romans 4:21 uh, says abraham was fully convinced that god is able to do whatever he promises secondly his purposes never change isaiah 14:24 the lord of heaven's armies has sworn this oath it will all happen as i have planned it will be as i have decided and his personality never changes. Hebrews 6.18, God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Now that leads to a second truth though, because God does not change, God's people can change. So grace-filled giving helps us to return wholeheartedly to God. The first part of verse seven is a summary statement of the fickleness of the followers of God down through the centuries. It says, ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Malachi is saying to us, God's people have habitually turned God away. We've turned him off. We've decided that we can do without him. So the warning that God gives to them in Deuteronomy 31.20 proves true. It says, for I will bring them into the land I swore to give their ancestors a land flowing with milk and honey. There they will become prosperous, eat all the food they want, and become fat. But they will begin to worship other gods, and they will despise me, and they will break my covenant. You see, when we get all of our needs met, we often turn away from God. Instead of giving or keeping God in the forefront of things and honoring him, we push him a little bit out of the way because we become disobedient and we rebel against God's law and we feel like we can handle life really pretty well all on our own. We don't need God. And yet despite how we live and despite what we do, God graciously calls out with words that reveal his longing for God that relationship. Look at the next phrase in verse 7. Now return to me, and I will return to you. Now to, To return means just simply to turn back to what we know is true. You see, the door to blessing, to God's blessings, always starts when we turn back to him. You can hear God's desire to have all of us In the uh, book of Hosea, chapter 14, verse one, it says, return to the Lord your God for your sins have brought you down. And when we turn back, even if it's just a small step, God promises to meet with us James 4:8: "Come close to God and He will come close to you." You would think that God's people would have wanted to return to their redeemer, especially since He promised to restore their, uh, the relationship and cure their wandering hearts. But instead, God's people haven't changed much over the centuries, have we? Instead of returning wholeheartedly to God, they denied that they even had a problem. Look at the last part of verse seven, but you ask, how can we return? when we have never gone away. These people that Malachi is addressing are not asking for some practical steps on how they can step it up spiritually. Now this is the sixth time in this book where they have responded like smart Alex. Hear their denial. How can we return when we've never gone away? They don't think there's anything wrong with what they're doing, they don't think that they've done anything wrong? How can they come back when they've never left? How can they repent if they're not guilty of anything? Let me suggest two steps that we can all take when we want to come back to God. And the first step is simply to ask the question, like the prodigal son did when he was in the pig pen, how did I get here? How did I get here in the first place? And that's an important question because the place to it to start is always to admit that we have strayed from God. We might not have left him on purpose. Maybe it's just been a slow drift. Most of us don't decide to rebel against God, but over time, we begin to neglect the things of God. And, that start, and then we start doing some things that aren't good for us, and after a while, we recognize just how far we've fallen away from God. And if we want to return to God with our whole heart, we have to start by admitting that we need to come back. But the second step is to ask, how, did I, how do I get back home? What do I need to do? What changes do I need to make? What path do I need to follow? Malachi's message was a call to return to God. And interestingly enough, one of the ways to return is to realize uh, what money and what material things play in our life, the role that they play. It's huge. We'll see that in the next verse because grace-filled giving moves us to realize the importance of giving to God. Look at verse eight. Should people cheat God? And yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me out of the tithes and the offerings due to me. The word cheat in this instance simply means to take forcibly. The people didn't like this accusation. They, they could be, uh, How could they be stealing from God? The reason God says that they're robbing him is that they've begun to take what belonged to God and keep it for themselves. They lost sight of the fact that God owns everything. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it belongs to the Lord your God. So as a way to recognize God's rightful ownership of all things, God's people in the Old Testament were instructed to give tithes and offerings. The, The word tithe literally means a tenth or 10%. And while some would say that this is teaching based on the law, let me remind you that Abraham practiced tithing 400 years before the law was ever given. In Genesis fourteen twenty, he gave a tenth of everything he owned to the priest Melchizedek. And in Deuteronomy 12 11, which is part of the law challenges God's people to bring their tithes bring their special gifts to the place of God's choosing. Now here's an interesting fact the people of Israel did not just have to give one tithe. First they were required to bring a tenth of all their produce, their livestock, or the financial equivalent to the temple for distribution. And the Levites would give a portion of their, that tithe to the priest to the, to the, to the temple for use in, in God's work. Secondly, they were to bring another tithe during special feast days. And the third, uh, adults were required to pay a half shekel whenever there was a census taken. So failure to tithe properly might have included not giving it all or withholding part of it or giving it the uh, wrong time but whatever the reason they were robbing god and verse 9 says that the whole nation fell under a curse now when we complain about giving or withholding what's rightfully belongs to god we are robbing god of his right to use us to advance his purposes in the world Look at the first part of verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough food in my temple. The storehouse was the chamber in the temple where all the tithes and offerings were kept. Let me make three quick summary statements about the application of tithing for today. We no longer live under the law, but tithing is a good benchmark for all believers. In other words, it's a good place to start, sort of like you know, a minimum guide for giving. It's a yardstick by which we can measure ourselves. Secondly, it's easy to tithe and yet miss out on what's really important. Jesus took the, uh, took the Pharisees to task not because they weren't tithing, but because they had become so legalistic that they no longer cared about their love for God and their love for other people. See, God looks at the heart he doesn't look at the hand. He doesn't look at the gift. He looks at the heart, and he focuses on the giver, not the gift, because our attitude is a whole lot more important to God than our amount. And then third, the practice of tithing is a good reminder of who's really in charge of our life. When we give at least 10%, it's a way to be reminded that God owns everything. Everything we have is a gift from God. God wants... Uh, what our money represents he wants us and when we're giving to God we're just taking our hands off what already belongs to him in the first place our use of money shows what we think about God because our giving is a thermometer of our love one author wrote it's not so much what you have but rather what has you that makes all the difference I don't have time to give you a full picture of what the entire Bible teaches about giving, but let me quickly draw three more principles from just one verse in the New Testament. Since we're not under the law, it is essential that we understand how to give in this age of grace, in the New Testament age. Having said that, in general, the New Testament heightens rather than lessens the teachings of the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the Apostle Paul says this, On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. In a nutshell, here's what the New Testament teaches. Giving should be punctual. The Bible says that believers are to give on a regular basis. Secondly, giving should be personal. Giving is something that is inherently individualistic. It's between you and God, And at the same time, the Bible makes it clear that every believer is to give, each one of you. Giving is not a suggestion. It's what God expects of us. And then third, giving should be proportional. We're to give according to how God has blessed us. Every believer is to set aside a portion of the money we've earned. Proportional giving means that the more God blesses us, the more we're able to give. That's New Testament grace giving, which ultimately may involve more than 10%. According to Malachi, the more we give, the more we are going to be blessed. St. Paul teaches that the more we're blessed, the more we're able to give. Sounds a little like Dave Ramsey in Financial Peace University class, doesn't it? But don't get me wrong here. This is not a sales pitch for the prosperity gospel. Being obedient to God, being faithful to God in every area of our life, but especially in the area of giving is a sensitive area for most of us but it is absolutely central to who we are as followers of Jesus Christ it pulls us or puts us in a place Uh, where God can bless our life. When we are being obedient to God, we are putting ourselves in a place where God can bless us. Not always with monetary blessings, not always with material blessings, but God blesses us in a variety of other ways as well. The Old Testament uh, gives a command to tithe by setting a standard, a percentage. In the New Testament, the, the command becomes a model to as it urges us to practice proportional giving. And the emphasis is on obedience. It's on generosity, not limitation. Ultimately, when we give, we're saying that we trust God. We trust him to take care of all of our other needs. And that leads to the next feature of giving from the middle section of verse 10. It God says, put me to the test put me to the test. Grace-filled giving is about relinquishing our control and trusting God. Here's another way to say it. When we give at least 10% of our income to God, we're saying that we trust him. We trust that he's able to help us to live on the other 90%. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6.33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and God will give you everything you need. Researcher Sylvia Ronsovall, after studying the giving patterns of uh, numerous Christians, concluded by saying, if you want to know what we learned, in 25 words or less, here it is. Giving is a struggle because we don't love God as much as we love a lot of other stuff. Isn't that true? Malachi 3.10 is the only place in the Bible where God tells us to test him. To test means to investigate, to prove that something's true. It doesn't sound right, uh, but it is. You know, Other places in Scripture, we're warned not to test God. And yet when it comes to giving, God invites us to test him because the real issue is not our money. It's our trust. And when we decide to give a percentage of our income to the Lord, we have the opportunity to trust that he's faithful to meet all of our other needs. Or we could put it like this, when we first give ourselves to the Lord, all other giving becomes easy. God is saying, I dare you. Test me in this way. See if I really exist or not. Try it, let me prove it to you. This is one of the most amazing verses, I think, in all of the Bible. God allows himself to be put on trial. He didn't have to make this promise. He could have simply told us what we needed to give and and demanded that, but he wanted us to get to know him in a much deeper way. Is God alive? is he real does he love us will he keep his promises one of the best ways to find out is to start tithing a couple of years ago some of you will remember we launched a campaign to pay off the mortgage on this facility we tested God in a big way and he proved faithful because many of you were faithful I'll never forget the joy that took place as we watched God bring in the finances so that we could retire the mortgage of $1.1 million on this facility. And that leads to the last point I want to make today. Grace-filled giving rejoices in God's blessings. Look with me at the last part of verse 10 through verse 12. I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they're ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. When I talk to people who have discovered the joy that comes in giving generously to others and to God, uh, I hear words like, hey, it works. God is faithful. God has been blessing us. It makes me feel sorry for people who never get that. You don't know what you're missing. God says that he'll open wide the windows of heaven and blow us away with blessings. Some translations use the phrase floodgates instead of windows. It's a reference to the Old Testament, Genesis 7 Uh, Verse 11 where we read that God, uh, when when the flood started that covered the earth, God said on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of heaven were opened. The phrase just simply means a blessing so great that God will give us more than enough. The world says the more we take, the more we can have. God says the more you give, the more you are. Cory Ten Boom put it this way. She said, the measure of a life is not its duration, but its donation. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, God rewards those who honor him. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce, and then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. God will pour out. In Malachi, that word simply means God will empty out heaven on us when we trust god with our given he will empty his bucket of blessings on us and we'll barely be able to stand it because they'll keep coming we'll feel like we don't have any room to hold everything that god is going to give us proverbs eleven twenty four: 24 free, give freely and become more wealthy be stingy and lose everything Proverbs 9, two nine. blessed are those who are generous because they feed the poor. You see, blessings come to those who will risk and give to God. And amazingly, Malachi 3.11 states that God will even keep certain bad things from happening when we give him our first fruits and our best. When we give, we put ourselves in a position to trust God to meet all of the other needs in our life. In addition, God declares in verse 12 that there's a global dynamic. Then he says, all the nations will call you blessed for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Can you imagine what would happen in this world today for the cause of Christ if every believer would give at this level? Can you imagine what would happen and how the kingdom... Uh, purposes would be advanced if we learn to give at this level. Pray with me, will you? Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that we are no longer under the law but under grace. Thank you for all that you are and all that you have done for us, and I pray that our hearts today would be open before you and that you would develop in us a loving and a giving heart and a spirit of generosity. Thank you for the many things we can learn from the failings of your people, Israel, and help us to never fall into those same prideful traps that they fell into when they refused to obey your word and robbed you of your rightful place in their lives. Lord, we freely acknowledge that all we are, you have made us, and all that we have, you have given to us. So I pray that we may live and work always for your greater purpose and your praise and your glory alone